forgive me for my opening analogy, um, because it's theologically deplorable. But it's a thought, an image that came to my mind that kind of leads to a big idea. And the, the analogy or, or the picture is, is this. If, 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 if the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Yahweh in the Old Testament, um, the Lord, God of heaven, the Ancient of Days, if he was sitting on his throne and, and he was surrounded by um, newspapers from every time and every place, and he was to pick up a newspaper and start flipping through its pages. And as I said, it's theologically deplorable because the Lord has no need of human news. He knows everything from beginning to end. Not surprised by anything. But if he, if he did flip through a New York Times, for example, what do you think would draw his attention? What would draw a smile um, that he would want to point at and say, wow, this is good? Would it be the front page, you know? What's going on with investigations of nuclear power in Iran or massive ice storm hits the east or tsunami hits you know, Indonesia? Is that what he'd like, be drawn to? Um, would he be drawn to the financial section? Some guy in the first service said, no, he'd be drawn to the comics. That was kind of funny. Um, how Wall Street's doing? Was that where he'd pause? Maybe the classifieds? Wanted ads, help wanted. Just imagine him looking at the paper and flipping through. The God that I've come to know as I've studied Scripture through the years, and and I I hope you can resonate with this too, because it's everywhere in Scripture. The God that I've come to know would be one who would pause and smile over the most obscure newspaper from the most obscure little village about some no-name person that nobody cares about. That is the one that the world has all but forgotten, and I think that the Lord would pause and he would smile and read the story of this no-name person from an obscure town in an obscure newspaper, and he'd say, that, that's good. The reason I say that is because the God that I've come to know, and hopefully you've come to know, is altogether different than the way we humans think. What we gravitate towards in our focus and our attention, especially when it comes to news, are are always the big, cataclysmic, um, renowned things that that uh, make people go ooh and awe. And, and the people who show up there, the journalists and the, the reporters, they show up there because the spotlight is shining so brightly and everybody wants a piece of the action. Everything from politics to economics to a diva twerking all over the place, which is amazingly horrific that that makes headline news. But that's the kind of stuff we look at. We gravitate towards the pronounced and things that are great or destructive news and and um, I think the Lord is one actually in Scripture who takes notice of things that nobody else looks at. Um, that is, the Lord takes pleasure. He delights. He's passionate about using no-name people to do great things for his name's sake. And just re-say that again, and I'll say it at the end of the message. That the Lord is pleased to show his power, to, to, to choose 
and to work through people who are no-name people living in a backwater town um, to do good things and to show his power through. One of those people, of course, is, is, uh, is Joseph. The Gospel of Luke, the good news according to Luke, the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Luke focuses on Mary's side of the story, and, and Matthew focuses on, on Joseph's side of the story. And we're so used to reading these stories as being cute Christmas stories that, that we use the, lose the humanness of them, and we, we lose the, the passion, and we lose the, the pain of these stories, and the ordinariness of them. I mean, you think about it, um, what would the newspaper read back at the time when Jesus was born or before, let's say nine months before? Um, maybe the Galilee Gazette or Jerusalem Post, whatever. What would the headlines be? What would people be looking for? Where is the spotlight in, 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 let's say, 4 BC, which is kind of approximating where he was born, when he was born? A couple things that might have been on the headline news would have been Caesar Augustus, Calls for the entire empire to participate in the census. Frontline news. Or, maybe in Jerusalem news, it would be King Herod completes second phase of temple remodeling, which he was doing about the time of Jesus. That would have been big big news. Or, um, Jewish riot ensues in temple courts because of a profane Roman soldier. People die as a result. All of those things Historic realities would have been headline news. Who the high priest was. Who the people who represented, who represented the people in the Sanhedrin. There's gridlock in the Sanhedrin. Those are, those are kind of frontline news. But the Gospel of Matthew hones in on a backwater town, an ordinary man who nobody would pay attention to, and we easily forget that. Nazareth is probably, and this is just a guess, but it wasn't a reputable place. Maybe it served as the bottom 10 places that you will want to avoid and never go on vacation. But of all places, the scope, the lens of heaven focuses on that little tiny town of ill repute. On a man who is simple and blue collar. A man who works with his hands, who sweats in work of stone and also wood. And it pans in on him. And says this, he would have never made the headlines. The Lord was looking at that backstory and going, hmm, this is good. And we're, we're introduced to him in a way that mingles both misunderstanding and miracle. We read in verse 18, and by the way, we learn something in this little section about Jesus, of course, and also I think about how God moves in faith, those kind of two related things. So we're introduced here in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Pause for a moment and notice, this has nothing to do with my message, but it's worth noting in our time, that the unborn baby here in her womb is not called a fetus or an embryo, but a child. Nothing wrong with those terms, provided we add to them that they are human. That's the biblical view. Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The picture here is, is very positive of Joseph's response. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think and imagine what it would be like because he's human, like we're human. And human experience doesn't change. Our emotions don't change. What happens in marriage doesn't change. You know, two young Jewish people fall in love, and Joseph and Mary, and, and, and he gets up the nerve to actually ask her, will you marry me? And she says yes, and they are betrothed, which means they enter into a legal covenant, but it's not full yet. That's kind of part one where they get engaged. But in that time, to be betrothed or engaged, to get out of it or dissolve it, required either death or an actually written divorce. That's how serious this betrothal was. But Mary still lived at home with her dad, and and he was preparing, getting ready for the day in which that marriage would be brought to completion. And, you know, um, we all know while marriage isn't all that plus a bag of chips for everybody, it still is. The wedding day is still the high point of of human experience and human joy and human celebration, which is why at the end of the Bible there is this wedding feast of a lamb because it's so powerful and so emotive and so beautiful and so wonderful. Here's Joseph looking forward to this day, preparing, getting ready to bring her home, make her his own. And all of a sudden things start to change and you notice some oddities, you know. He notices that she starts to get sick more often and throw up, especially in the morning. And she has this craving, this desire, this need for kosher saltine crackers to take away some of her nausea. I think that's a little strange. But then she starts desiring things like, out of nowhere, ice cream followed by pickles and then mustard. And, and realizing something's really off with my betrothed that I'm looking forward to marry and her, his suspicions because human experience across the ages is that women experience that during their pregnancy. His suspicion turns to certainty when he starts to see her show. And then, again, you, just, you can imagine how you would feel. I mean, all human reason and logic, science and medicine, the collective experience of all mankind tells us that that only happens one way. And it's not by drinking the water. And he would have felt in that moment, like anyone today would feel, to find out that the woman that they're engaged to is pregnant. And he knows it's not him, so that means there's only one other conclusion. That is, there's somebody else in her life. The feelings of of betrayal. All of a sudden, this dream that he had of of a nice little Jewish life, living in a Jewish house where he would work hard and come home at the end of the day, raise kids together, that dream was coming apart. It It was shattered. It was shattering before him. I mean, Again, you can, you can imagine um, how that would feel. But notice that the text describes his response to this time of crisis. Um, that he wants to deal with things in a way that's both just but also merciful. He's referred to here as a, as a just man. Which means that he was trying to follow what God designed in Scripture. Um, that's oftentimes what... Um, what a just man means. Um, but in, in, in addition to that, he, he, he wants to treat this woman who's hurt him, at least from his vantage point, he wants to treat her with mercy. I mean, he could have had her stoned, but he settled for an alternative means of justice, and that is he was going to dissolve the marriage, and he was going to do it quietly. Um, resisting that inner impulse of anger 
and feelings of betrayal to actually expose and bring shame and guilt to the other party. And we all know there are stories of that. That he resists that. And so he wants to do the right thing, the just thing, but he does so mercifully. And I, I think that's because Joseph is a, is a man who, who loved the word of God and more importantly than that, the heart of God. And he knew that what the Lord desires of a man is to walk humbly and, you know, and be a man of justice and a man of mercy. And here we see just that. And in the middle of his crisis, in the middle of his world melting down, he's, he's uh, following what he knows of the Lord and walking in mercy and justice. And there's, there's a lesson in this for us, I think. It's not the primary point of the text. But Joseph at this point is in the dark. It's like he doesn't know what's really taking place. But all science, medicine, human experience, and logic tells him that what's going on is wrong. And in in the midst of that, in the midst of this kind of darkness he's in, this confusion he's in, what does he do? But he focuses in on doing what he knows to be right before the Lord. And I think that's commendable because there are many times in, and we find in our lives where it's like the Lord shuts the lights off and you find yourself going, what are you doing? Life t- takes a corner and all of a sudden the dreams you once had begin to melt away and you hurts and, and you're just wondering, where are you, Lord, in this? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, And what do you do in those times? I mean, that's where he is. He's in the middle of a crisis, doesn't really know what's going on because he's in the dark. And I think his example serves as a a positive lesson of when you're in the dark and you don't know what's going on, you don't know what the Lord's doing, you go with what you do know. That is, you go with what you know the Lord has revealed and you continue to just walk that direction. That's what he's doing in the middle of it. In the dark, you go with what you know about the Lord and about his word. Um, I always think of it this way, and this is the image that, that... that, that comes to my mind over and over again with this, is that when, when the lights go out and you don't know what's going on, you find yourself in pain, you're in a dark room, and God has given you a rope, and that rope is his word and his promise of what you know him to be. And though you can't see anything at that time, all you can do is hold on to the rope and follow it. That's all you can do. And that's what he's doing. If you're there, you're fine. You don't know what the Lord you're doing. What is it you're supposed to do at this point? When you don't know what God's doing, just continue to walk in the manner that you know the Lord wants you to walk. That's a good lesson that I've learned from this little segment. Again, not the main point, but it is something we learned from his response. Well, the Lord didn't keep him in the dark forever. Um, The Lord did send him a messenger, heaven, again, taking notice of this backwater village and this man who's really of no worldly consequence, um, we read this. But as he considered these things, as a man in pain, that first part, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, this is Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I can imagine at this point, Joseph is like breathing a massive sigh of relief that it's true. So this is a miracle. I mean, he's receiving divine revelation, a gracious gift from the Lord to say it really is true. Your, 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 your wife has not violated 
um, your marriage. She is, what's in her is, is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was Joseph, I would have said, Lord, couldn't you have led off with that? Like, couldn't you have let me know ahead of time? You saved me all this pain and anguish. I was thinking of divorcing my wife. I was on the edge of divorcing you, you know. But for whatever reasons, the Lord allows us to go through dark times and provides um, revelation or retrospective illumination later on. Um, but the Lord tells him, you know, um, gives him guidance. He says, no, you need to marry this girl. I have plans for your marriage. And um, by the way, I have a name picked out for your baby. Um, and that's a name that you're going to name him. There's no choice in the matter. His name's going to be Jesus. And um, it, there, it's interpreted here. But you notice there's two names in this text. He says Jesus and Emmanuel, those two names. Um, Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus in Hebrew actually means, literally means, it's actually on my ring right here. It means um, Yahweh saves um, or Yahweh is salvation. I mean, that's the name. Joseph, your son's going to be named Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh's saves. Um, and, and you notice he's, um, the angel is crystal clear on what he comes to save humans from. And it's not bad politics. It's not substandard education. It's not, um, well, let's just say it's not political oppression. It's, it's to save them from their, their sin. Now, as much as the world tries to redefine that, that three-letter word as a, a flaw of evolution or um, redefine it or, or pretend it doesn't exist or what we often do, point at other things as the cause, the, the fact of the matter is this, this little three-letter word is at the very heart and root of all that's wrong with this world. At the very beginning of the Bible, it was sin that, 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 that just caused everything to collapse. Everything to collapse. Relationships, our relationship to our own souls, our relationship to our wives, our kids, brother against brother, and, and creation falls and decays and is subject to bondage, all as a result of this little three-letter word. So it's, it's logical then that the very first thing that needs to be dealt with that we need to be saved from is that which is at the core, that which is at the root. Everything else is symptomatic. It's either a a direct or indirect result of sin. Everything around us. That is at the heart of it, though, and it needs to be dealt with. And that's why he came, to deal with what is at the core. We oftentimes, with the rest of our culture, like to look and blame other things for the way we are. But the fact of the matter is, underneath it all, is this three-letter word that speaks of something within you and within me and within our human race that's fallen and rebellious and wants to do what it wants to do, and that is the fundamental core root problem. That the, the problem with us is not an educational one, political one, or environmental one. The whole story of the Old Testament is a, a massive object lesson on the fundamental problem with us. Which is why over and over and over again, you read from Genesis to Malachi. God delivers his people because he loves them. And they're like, yes, thank you. And then they immediately turn from him. And then God's like disciplines them to bring them back. And they finally say, all right, Lord, we screwed up. And the Lord delivers them again. And then they have a little brief time of, of peace. And then they decide to turn from him again. And then the Lord punishes her disciplines to bring them back. And finally they say, Lord, we need help again. And he delivers them. It's this endless cycle of, of deliverance 
and failure. Deliverance, failure, deliverance, failure, deliverance, failure. This spans thousands of years. And it wasn't an educational problem. It wasn't that they didn't know enough practical knowledge. They had the entire law of Moses. That is practical and it's minute. The problem isn't that we don't have enough information. It wasn't an environmental problem. They were living in a land flowing with milk and honey. It wasn't environmental. And it wasn't political. The fact of the matter is they kept failing and failing and failing and failing despite the illumination, despite the word of God, despite God saving over and over again. The fundamental problem was here. This is where the change needed to be done. That little three-letter word. And it's not until... It's not until we as humans come to the realization, that realization that that three-letter word is at the center of it, and the person that looks at you in the mirror every day is the fundamental problem, that we see the importance of the name Jesus. Yahweh saves from our sin. To look in the mirror and say, it's not my mom's problem, not my dad's problem, not my parents' problem, not my upbringing, not my surroundings. It's not Washington's fault. It's not the city's fault. It's not my neighbor's fault. It's your fault. And you point at yourself. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Only by really realizing that deep down um, do we then see the importance of the words and he will save his people from their sin. He will take away the deadly consequence of it, which is wrath, and he will sever the power of it by giving us his spirit in our hearts and renovating our insides. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's come to deliver us from. So here you have this angelic message. He reveals that this little conceived child in the womb is none other than Yahweh's salvation from sin, what they need the most, what we need the most. But the other name is also important. If the first name, Jesus, tells us that Yahweh saves us from something, then the second one tells us what we get in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel. As as I said, it's Isaiah chapter 7, where um, the prophet Isaiah, 700 or so years before Jesus was ever born, spoke of a time in which a virgin would conceive and give birth to a child, and that child would be called Emmanuel, which means Yahweh is with us, or God is is with us. God's presence. And there's no way, there's no way possible to overemphasize or overexplain how precious those three words are, God with us. It is the crown jewel of the Bible, God's presence. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't the trees, it wasn't the rivers, it wasn't even husband and wife. It was, this crown jewel was the presence of the Lord in the garden and illuminating it and giving himself to his people. That's, that's the crown jewel of Eden. The crown jewel of the promise to Abraham was that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's relationship. That is the presence of God dwelling amongst his people. The crown jewel of all the wilderness wanderings was the fact that the Lord was there in a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, his presence among his people, the crown jewel of Israel. All of the covenants center on this thing called, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is dwelling, presence. It's, it's the center of everything. The crown jewel of, of Jerusalem is the simple fact that it is, in the words of Psalm 46, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
the end of the Bible, the final reward in the garden city of Revelation, it is when they see his face and he makes his presence to dwell amongst his people. That is the crown jewel of human experience and wonder and beauty and everything we were created for. And here in this angelic message, in this backwater town to this carpenter, the Lord says his name is going to be God's presence is with us. The crown jewel of the Bible of creation and redemption and everything God is doing centers on the simple fact that God is dwelling amongst his people in the person of Jesus Christ in flesh and blood. And we still, brothers and sisters, await for the return of the crown jewel to our, our, our place and for him to reclaim what's rightfully his. So you see, this, in this little brief little news that heaven gives to earth, that heaven gives to a, an ordinary man who, by all evidence, trusts in the Lord and is endeavoring to walk faithfully in light of what he's told him, um, the Lord has just revealed this child, conceived, started off as one cell, and is forming in Mary's womb. This is God's salvation and God's presence. I, I wonder if he really understood what he was told. It's like, could you say that again, please? Because me, I, I have hardly anything in my bank account. I get up with the sun, I go to bed with the sun. I come home sore because I'm not a white-collar guy. Like, you have to have the wrong person. Laura's like, no. You are going to become the legal guardian. He's not Jesus' physical father. He's his adopted father and therefore makes him legal heir to the throne of David. No, you are going to be the steward of my son. And you are going to provide food for him and shelter for him. And you're going to raise him and you're going to teach him. You're going to mentor him. You're going to take him into your shop and teach him how to work with wood and stone and teach him how to sweat and use his hands. What a massive blessing and responsibility. He's been floored. Of all people on the the planet, that's who he chooses. And if... Any way that the Lord could come, the Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, one with no beginning and no end, that no mind will ever understand, makes his entry in a single cell in a woman's womb. That's amazing. And it starts with such insignificance. And yet, as we've already come to know in terms of Joseph, his response is that of simple faith. And Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took um, his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. That knew her not is, well, it's a biblical way of saying he didn't do something with her. It's a euphemism. Uh, and he called his name Jesus. That, he just responded and did what he's told because he trusted the word. Simple man of faith. What do you learn from this? What, are, what you and I kind of take away? And of course, I've, I've, I've already really said it but let me recap it for you. I think this whole news that comes to Joseph basically is telling us that Jesus is Yahweh's salvation and presence hidden in human flesh. Hidden. And the reason I say hidden is because not everybody saw him and said, oh, that's Yahweh's salvation and that's Yahweh's presence. Some people saw him as a man who was despised and rejected, somebody who had no attraction that we should be, you know, Driven to him. 
maybe a good teacher, maybe a false teacher, maybe a man who just taught about love. In that sense, he's a, a good humanist, but that's all they see. Because it's what's hidden in the Son of God that is so um, remarkable and wonderful, and not everybody sees it. Many wouldn't see it. God gave Joseph the eyes to see who his son would become, and he would never live, by the way, to see his son die or come to see him raised. He would die long before that, according to the Gospels. But hidden in this man is nothing less than the presence of the Lord, the presence of Yahweh. Even Paul the Apostle said that in him, in Jesus, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And some who have come to see who he really is, in the eyes of faith and the Spirit opening our hearts, have come to see what John explained, the Word, the, the life-giving, um, creative, eternal Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us as human fallen beings. And we beheld his glory, though in physical form he looked just like a man, we beheld his glory, the glory um, of the one and only full of grace and truth, and I'm here to testify, John would say that we saw his blood spill out and we saw him raised and it's proven to us. He is Yahweh come in the flesh and he's God's mighty arm of salvation. Therefore, we trust in him. We long for him. Um, Willing to separate ourselves from any and everything to have him. That's when we come to discover the jewel of who Jesus is for us and why he is more than enough for all of our hopes um, why he's more than enough to give us this peace we celebrate because we know that, that he is the one who saves us. He's the one who, who is the object of our supreme desire. That's because it's Jesus. That's, that's the primary and fundamental lesson, I think, that, that we're supposed to take away from this, just that it draws your eyes once again to see how, who he really is and that he can be trusted with everything. But there's also this kind of sub-theme or lesson, which I've also alluded to, And that is the way in which the Lord chooses to work. That throughout the scripture you find that the Lord gravitates toward or chooses to utilize. Not the powerful, not those of high stature, not those who are in the spotlight, although God has and does use people of stature, and of success and power he has. By and large, the people that you see that God taps on the shoulders to the scripture and says, I have it work for you, most of them were in pain and in crisis, and they were people of insignificance in terms of worldly um, status. And there's a reason for that, and that's because if God gravitated to those of high stature and success and toward power structures, the thing that gains the attention of the spotlight and media is, well, then those power structures would get the glory and credit in the end, and and God's not about that. So he chooses the things that are weak in this world that are ordinary, the things that we think are insignificant, from backwater towns, blue-collar workers, to do amazing things. And here's a perfect example, one of many in the Bible that says that that the people that the Lord uses are oftentimes people who will never make the history books, who will never be in the spotlight. And I'll tell you, I have to tell myself that, and we need to tell ourselves that over and over and over again because we oftentimes are seduced by the thought that if I could be something more, then I would 
feel like something more and God could use me more. So we find ourselves constantly comparing ourselves to those who are beyond us. And, and I think the Joseph story, along with the Mary story and um, the shepherd's story, all teach us that the ones that God has blessed with grace to see and behold and experience, the ones he uses to, to change the world, are people who are quite ordinary, living out their lives. Joseph's lot in life, he was to be a faithful father to Jesus. He was to be a faithful husband to his wife, Mary, and he was to go to work each and every day, and he was to break stone and cut wood and do his job. And God used this ordinary man in his humble faith in the middle of his crisis to be part of a work that changed world history. And what I want to say to you and I want to say to me is the simple fact that, you know what, that's what God wants of you too. We have people in this room who do all kinds of things. Don't underestimate what you do is insignificant. We have people who drive taxi cabs. We have people who are butchers and clerks. We have people who teach school week after week after week after week in the public and private school system. And we have people who put pipes together, people who, uh, who pound nails into wood, people who build houses. We have ladies who stay home, change diapers and, and cook meals and probably feeling like, well, what I do doesn't matter. And I'll tell you what, the Joseph story would say, absolutely not. Um, the Lord's looking in that newspaper and he's passing over all the big stuff. And he looks to the person who's like, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do for you and I'll walk faithfully each day, trusting you. And he reads that story, the story that actually he has written and he looks down as insignificant as you might think your little story is and he says, that's good. That's good. Because this person trusts in me and though they may not see it in their lifetime." The world is going to change because they existed and because they walked with me and trusted me. And someday, that spotlight will shine on those who have been faithful. And the Lord will say to those as he exalts and glorifies them, well done, good and faithful servant. Then is the time for the spotlight. And we will respond saying, Lord, we didn't do anything that you didn't first do through us. And they'll say, that doesn't matter. I'm still giving you the glory. That's a pretty amazing statement. I pray that you um, know that, you know, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, serving the Lord, trusting him in what you're doing. Don't devalue what you do or who you are or what your career is. Joseph should remind you of that. He was the father, the legal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh's salvation and Yahweh's presence. Will you pray with me?